Welcome. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm Director of the Institute for Government. I'm delighted to be having this event here this afternoon. We couldn't have picked a quieter day to look back over a century. Uh, I'm very grateful to Mark Walpert and his colleagues for prompting us to put on this discussion of 100 years since the Haldane Report and what about the next 100 years to come. And it, you know, it is 100 years since that report, which did not exactly set out the Haldane principle, as we're going to hear, but since that report by the Machinery of Government Committee came out and that really triggered, well, not, not only set in motion some of the things that led to the research councils we have now, but triggered this debate for a century about what the role of government in research should be when government uh, hands over funds for research. Should it set out to try and make sure that they're used for a social good or, or should it stand right back and let them be independent? And that committee, when we look back over the, the papers, I mean, it's really very moving how it captures some of the spirit of right at the end of the First World War, that spirit of reconstruction. And knowing that that war represented such an extraordinary jump in technological ability the uh, armed forces going into it literally with some horses as well as other equipment and coming out of it with all kinds of things including tanks and planes that fired forward through their propellers one of those extraordinarily uh, rich technological moments um, and absolutely relevant to what the report was discussing so we're going to um, discuss all kinds of things through this. I'm going to hand over to Gemma Tetlow, our chief economist, who's going to chair this first panel, and Mark Walpert will be the first speaker, I think. Gemma, over to you. Thank you very much, Bronwyn, and welcome to all of you to the IFG today to discuss 100 years on from the Haldane Report, which eventually became uh, manifested in the Haldane Principle, although I think we're, we're going to have some discussion of the fact that the original report didn't necessarily set out the principle as has now been interpreted. Um, but looking at the, the arguments about the decisions about how we spend on research funding and the role of politicians and government <coughs> in guiding uh, research policies, I'm Gemma Tetlow, I'm Chief Economist here. I'm something of a late substitute as chair of this panel, which was supposed to be chaired by my colleague Catherine Haddon, but uh, Kath is our resident expert on the history of Whitehall, and as such has been called away this afternoon to use her vast academic research to try and explain to the audience of the BBC World Service just exactly what is going on on the other side <laughs> of St James's Park today. Um, so I'm really delighted that you're able to join us. The Haldane Report was a landmark in the history of British government imposing challenges about how government should be organised, the principles behind good policy making and the relationship between government and research. And Haldane's ideas have been a key part of the debate on those issues for the last hundred years. The principle that bears his name has for several decades been at the very centre of how ministers, civil servants, academics and research funders have thought about how government funds research. And the creation of UK research and innovation, of which Mark Walport leads, in April this year was one of the most significant changes to the landscape of research in the UK for many years, making it an excellent time to come together and think about uh, how funding of research in this country has evolved and what the challenges are uh, for that process now. And with me to do that, I have a really in incredibly uh, well-qualified panel, all of whom have uh, very long titles before their names. <laughs> um, so uh, on my far left, and our first speaker today will, will be Professor Mark Walport, who is the CEO of UKRI, which has a budget of £6 billion for research and innovation in the UK. Before that, uh, Mark was Government Chief Scientific Advisor, and before that, Director of the Wellcome Trust and a <coughs> Professor of Medicine at UCL. 
on my... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Very sorry. <laughs> Professor of Medicine at Imperial, obviously a, a much <laughs> more prestigious uh, organisation. <laughs> um, on my immediate left is the Right Honourable Lord David Willits, uh, who is Executive Chair of the Resolution Foundation now, and between 2010 and 2014 was Minister for Universities and Science. Uh, he's also written a recent excellent book called A University Education, which I can see he's clutching a copy of in his lap there, um, which provides a detailed study of the UK's university sector, including an assessment of how we fund research compared to the approaches other countries take. And on my right, uh, Dame Manoush Shafiq, who will be responding to the comments uh, from our first two speakers, has been director of LSE since April 2017. And prior to that, well, immediately prior to that, was deputy governor at the Bank of England, but started her career at the World Bank before then moving into the UK civil service and ultimately being permanent secretary at DFID. So it will be great to hear your views from both the inside and now the, the research side of this question. Um, so the way we're going to run this is that Mark will speak for up to 10 minutes to start us off. Uh, David will then have 10 minutes to make his remarks and then Manoush will respond to those. We'll then have a bit of a discussion within the panel before leaving plenty of time for questions uh, from all of you on the floor. So thank you very much, Mark. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Um, so I bring along two copies of the Haldane Report, whose centenary we celebrate this afternoon. Um, this one comes from Grimsby Public Libraries and is a 1952 reprint, and it's almost pristine, so make of that what you will. Um, um, but the, my main reason for bringing it is that to show you what a slim document it is. Um, in 80 lucid pages, it outlines the whole machinery of government, written at the end of the First World War for the Ministry of Reconstruction, um, and that machinery is entirely recognizable today, although I do rather fear that Haldane himself might not be entirely satisfied by its operations as we speak. Um, the second exhibit is another version of the Haldane report, um, but this is interesting because it belonged to Michael Heseltine. Uh, now, it's not the Michael Heseltine you may be immediately thinking of. This was the Michael Heseltine who was actually a, the secretary of the Haldane Committee. Uh, he was an extremely clever civil servant who served much of his career in the world of health. Uh, he was also the secretary of the report that led to the formation of the Ministry of Health. Um, he was the secretary of the Royal Commission on Local Government. Um, and when he moved out of government, he became the registrar of the General Medical Council. Um, and in fact, there are two obituaries of him, uh, one in the British Medical Journal that basically ignored everything that he did outside the GMC, and actually a much better one and a shorter one, which was published in The Lancet. Um, so uh, Haldane and Heseltine were both important in government and the universities. But I want to start with Haldane, who, of course, was the chairman of the committee. So Richard Burton Haldane was born in Edinburgh in 1856, uh, the son of Robert and Mary Elizabeth Haldane, who herself was the daughter of Richard Burton Sanderson. And Robert and Mary Elizabeth Haldane founded a, an extraordinary dynasty of scholars, writers, and scientists, including the physiologists John Scott Haldane um, and John Burton Sanderson Haldane and the author Naomi Mitchison. And R.B. Haldane himself was by any criteria a polymath. He was a lawyer, he was a philosopher, he was a politician, and he was an educational pioneer. And as a liberal politician, he was between 1905 and 1912 the Secretary of State for War. 
and from 1912 to 1915 he was the Lord Chancellor. Um, he switched to Labour at the time of the general election of 1923 and was then the Lord Chancellor and leader of the House of Lords in the Labour government of Ramsay MacDonald. And with the Fabians, uh, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, and with Manoush on the panel, um, he actually participated in the foundation of the London School of Economics in 1895. Um, and Beatrice Webb was one of the members of the committee uh, on the machinery of government. Um, he was Chancellor of Bristol University from 1912 to 1928, and subsequently became Chancellor of the University of St Andrews. But this background was actually an important antecedent to his report of 1918, because in his address to the citizens of Bristol on his installation as Chancellor of the University of Bristol in October 1912, Viscount Haldane, as he'd become the year before, said, applied science is in its best form only possible on a wide foundation of general science. And the fruitful, and the fruitful scientific spirit is developed day to day on a basis of high intellectual training the training which only the atmosphere of the fully developed university can completely provide. And I can see David nodding, I hope, in agreement. Um, and of the highest relevance to the present, referring to international competition, he commented in that lecture that an enlightened policy in education is the order of the day over most of the civilised world. And if we are to hold our own, even in the making of money, we dare not fall behind or lag in the endeavour to increase our efforts. And I think that is certainly true now as it was then. But anyway, in July 1917, the Machinery of Government Committee was established. It was a subcommittee of the Reconstruction Committee, and its report was to Christopher Addison, who later became Viscount Addison, and had the same political journey, actually, from the Liberals to the Labour Party. Um, and they reported to him in 1928, sorry, 1918. Um, in terms of reference were to the point uh, to inquire into the responsibilities of the central executive government and to advise in what manner the exercise and distribution of its functions should be improved, if all terms of reference were only like that. So with all of the talk of the Haldane principle, and, and David Egerton may say a bit more in a minute, it's absolutely clear to me that actually by far and away the clearest and most explicit principle in this report is set out in paragraph 12 at the start of a section headed formulation of policy where the, they wrote turning next to the formulation of policy we have come to the conclusion after surveying what came before us that in the sphere of civil government the duty of investigation and thought as preliminary to action might with great advantage be more definitely recognized and that seems to me to be the real Haldane principle, and one, again, which is as true now as it was then, and where we might not be in current circumstances if perhaps a bit more of that had happened, but anyway. Um, in a chapter dedicated to research and information, and this is where I think is the germs of the Haldane um, principle that we recognise now, the report sets out clearly the need for two types of inquiry and research. The first to be conducted through intelligence branches of administrative departments. And this is what we would now call departmental research and development activity. And then a second type of inquiry and research for the general use of administrative departments, but under the supervision of authorities not charged with administrative duties. And he then set out the remit of the intelligence work of administrative departments under four headings. 
So firstly, the conduct of special inquiries into and the preparation of reports upon matters affecting the business of the department. Secondly, the care and maintenance of a departmental library. And I would say that that's failed completely since it's so easy to buy all these books on the internet these days. Um, thirdly, the continuous study of the methods of administration in regard to the same subject matter in other parts of the United Kingdom, in the empire, and in foreign countries. In other words, learn from what happens elsewhere and don't repeat the mistakes of others. And fourthly, the scrutiny and circulation in the department of statements of general interest bearing upon the department's work, whether from particular branches of the departments, from the press, and from others, or from other sources. And I think what he's basically describing there is what we would now call horizon scanning activity. So those were the four things that he thought departments should do. And then finally, the report in the chapter sets out the principles for the con conduct of intelligence and research work for general use. And this is where I do think the report presages the current so-called Haldane principle. Um, it's, first of all, it sets out the landscape existing in 1918, and that included the Public Records Office as a repository of information, uh, the Somerset House Chemists that he suggested should develop into the Government Chemists Department, and you can still see that now, although it's been privatised. And the section then expands on the Government Actuary, the Medical Research Committee, and the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research. And the latter two were the precursors of the Research Councils, Innovate UK, and ultimately, from April the 1st this year, UK Research Innovation. And I think it is here that we do find the evolutionary ancestral traces of what is called the Haldane Principle. So when he wrote about the application of the Medical Research Fund, he said its expenditure is not limited to research into any particular disease, but that the money may be expended upon any purpose which is covered by the words medical research. And the Medical Research Committee, an expert committee, was relied upon to select the objects upon which they will spend their income. However, I think it is also clear from the report, which, remember, was written at the end of the First World War, that Haldane expected these general use research bodies to work closely with government administrative departments. And that was something that Paul Nurse revisited in his report of, 19, of, of, of 2015. Um, and to, to reinforce the point about the scientists leading on choices, the report states, and I shorten quotations from the report without distorting their meaning, the minister relies upon the Medical Research Committee to select the objects upon which they will spend their income and to frame schemes for the efficient and economical performance of their work. The minister has never sought to control their work or to suggest to them that they should follow one line of inquiry rather than another. And I think that is pretty much the Haldane principle as it has been distilled. And I'm sure David will say more about that in a minute. And then I think the final quote from the report of the Machinery Government Committee is illuminating. Science ignores departmental as well as geographic boundaries. The harvest of results is one for the benefit of the administrative departments as a whole and increases with the expansion of the territory which is assigned to the general research organisations. A generous conception of the scope to be assigned to intelligence and research work for general use will strengthen the hands of all the administrative departments concerned with subjects which are departmentally distinct but scientifically related, such as the production of dye stuffs on one hand and antiseptics on the other. And of course it was from the German dye industry that antibiotics, which were very brightly coloured initially, uh, uh, emerged. Now wind forward to 1963. 
Um, and another exhibit, a book that was disgorged to a second-hand bookseller from the Library of the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment. And I think this would be described in bookseller speak as good, which means lousy, uh, but with the text block being very good, which means it's never really been read. So it's the perfect example of an unloved, unre unread book. Um, but this book on science and politics by Lord Hailsham is fascinating for several reasons. In the preface, he states that, I am, so far as I know, the first and possibly the only minister for science, or of science for that matter, in the universe. Um, and the relationship between government and science is new and rapidly evolving and exciting wide and proper interest. And he goes on to claim that this expansion of government provision, this development of the political interest in the scientific, has rested on the clear demonstration that a nation's power to prosper in peace to survive in war and command the respect of its neighbours depends very largely on its degree of scientific and technological advance. Amen to that. And he comments that all science has its origin in the intellectual curiosity of the free human spirit, in its creative genius, in its power of insight. And he argues that the role of government is the relationship of an enlightened patron and not of that of an employer. Government is a financing coordinating, participating, training function. Over a large field, it is not and cannot be directory and executive. These are functions in which the main role ought to be played by industrialists, educationists, teachers, and scientists themselves. And I can't resist one last quote from Hailsham. Here, my first proposition is that at the highest level, it is ruinous to separate research and teaching. The story doesn't end here. Um, it's both proper and inevitable that ministers have a key interest on behalf of the taxpayers that they represent to maximise the impact for all of us as taxpayers um, on research and innovation budgets. And so 1971 brought the Rothschild and the Dayton Reports, uh, which essentially said rather opposite things. And the Dayton Report was published at the back of the Rothschild Report as I think probably the most convenient way the government could slip it out at the time. Um, 1993 brought the white paper by William Waldegrave, realising our potential. Um, and then 2015, Paul Nurse's review, ensuring a successful research endeavour. And to wind up, Paul's review recognised that a successful research endeavour needs to face in three directions. Firstly, supporting the most talented researchers to discover new facts. Secondly, talking to government to identify and tackle some of the important questions of the administrative departments, as Haldane would have called them. And thirdly, facing the business community to facilitate the research and development needed if we're to remain economically competitive. And it is the job of UK Research Innovation Board to advise ministers on this question of balance. But it does seem to me entirely appropriate that ministers should have the final decision on the balance between these activities and, of course, the overall quantum of funding. And so I would conclude by suggesting that the fundamental principles espoused in Haldane's report are as germane today as they were at the end of the First World War, and that it's really no exaggeration to suggest that the work supported by UK Research and Innovation is crucial to the future of a United Kingdom that I think is working very hard to define what its place in the world will be. Thank you for your attention. Do you want to speak?
Well, thank you very much indeed. It's a great pleasure to be here following on from Mark's uh, excellent talk, um, enlivened with some brilliant quotations from Haldane himself, and also some meaningful stares at me. <laughs> I was trying to interpret as he went along. Um, and I'd just like to begin by, by also reflecting on the history, but from a slightly different perspective, because, of course, this, this document, and I've, only, I've just got a sort of a modern copy of it, but this document, the 1918 report, um, is indeed, as Mark said, the crucial document which modernises the structure of government essentially on functional principles, which is what we believe he got from Beatrice Webb. You think of the useful functions of, of government and then allocate departments to them. Uh, but from the point of view of the, of the community here today, people from the worlds of university and research, it is part of a process at around this time which shaped far more of the research structure that we have today than we recognise. Um, it began because in the 19th century, and indeed up to the First World War, there was very little structured public support for research in uh, the UK, in striking contrast to Germany. So you have in the First World War the classic kind of moment they, they seem to be able to apply science to industry and uh, defence. We can't. And a rush, a panic, which begins with the creation of the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research in 1916 to, to fund and apply research in an organised way for the first time. A department, incidentally, which survived right through into the post-war period. You then had this frustration, which I describe in my book on universities, that why was this puzzle, why was America neutral? The hope that America, an expectation that with all the historic ties in the First World War, America would be our ally. Why did America remain neutral for so long? Uh, investigative journalists and others go to America to find out. And what do they find? The American academic community is largely educated in Germany. Because if you wish to do a postgraduate qualification, which is necessary to secure a proper career in Harvard or elsewhere, you go to Germany because there are no postgraduate qualifications of any significance in British universities. So they come back and say, all the opinion formers in America, all the key educators, are all German educated. And the initial impetus for the creation of the doctorate therefore came not from universities and not for the Board of Education. It came from the Foreign Office, which summoned the heads of universities, saying to them, we are losing the battle of ideas in America to the Germans because we don't have any kind of doctoral program. Hence, the first doctorate created in 1917 in response to the German competitive threat. So you then have, an, an, in a range of universities, you then have the universities summoned to the Foreign Office to be asked to do this, and the brilliant intervention of the Vice-Chancellor of Birmingham, who says, of course, you're absolutely right, Foreign Secretary, that we do need to encourage overseas students to come and study in Britain and to do doctorates in Britain, but it will be so embarrassing when they come here and see how ill-equipped our <laughs> facilities are. We really need public support so that we can invest in them and make the right impact on them when they arrive, and hence the creation of the uh, what were the, the University Grants Committee, the origins of a, a century of model in uh, 1919, and the origins of the Committee of Vice-Chancellor and Principals, now Universities UK, which was the lobbying body of the Vice-Chancellors. Now that it was public money, this was the body that was going to secure the public money. So this whole structure, a lot of this structure, from publicly funded research, the doctorate, public grants for universities, the um, 
uh, and, the, uh, and, the, and the Universities UK emerges in this brief period of three or four years in the latter half of the First World War and early on. So we had the whole thing report should also be seen in that context. It is a fantastic report and I, I agree with uh, Mark's point. I think if you are, there's this great debate, is the Haldane principle to be found in the Haldane report? And David Edgerton is fascinating on this. Um, and I, indeed, I, I agree with him. I was going to quote it myself and I don't need to. The, his account of how the Medical Research Committee works, which was the one publicly funded research organisation preceding the war, set up with one penny in the pound of the revenues created in the new National Insurance Fund created by Lord George. One penny was to go to research. As they tried to work out how to fund this research, Haldane is essentially, in the classic English way in which new principles are formulated, describe it, formulating it as a description of what already happens somewhere in the system, namely formulating as a description of the way in which the Medical Research Committee works, as it had been developed in the few years beforehand. Um, there is a learning debate about whether, and I don't want to put words into David's mouth, but David Edgen is fascinating on this. I think it's fair to say a summary of his argument would be the Haldane principle was really invented by Quentin Hogg for the purpose of attacking Labour's proposals for the new structure of research councils, arguing this would lead to enormous government interference, um, and didn't really go back much further. There's a new, uh, there's a new paper, I think, in... For Science or Nature by Asan Masood, who claims to have read the original documents, Whitehall documents, that preceded the report, where he claims to have discerned Haldane in working papers setting out what he calls the Haldane principle. And it is basically that ministers don't interfere in the decisions on specific research programmes or the which researchers should do it. And although we take it for granted in Britain now, at this very moment in Australia, the Minister for Universities and Science has been identified as specifically refusing research grants to specific projects in the arts and humanities, which I think is absolutely in conflict with the Haldane principle. And if we go down that route, it would be very dangerous for the quality of our research, but it shows we should never take it for granted. Even in fellow advanced Western countries, this can happen. And in a slightly different way, the principle is under threat in the US with increasingly political congressional interventions in areas of research that can or cannot be funded. So we should, we should hold on to it. It is precious. The, uh, now, this is seen as a protection for curiosity-driven research. And just a, a couple of comments on this. Of course, there's, a, there's an endless sense that blue skies research might be under threat. And there are many defences of Blue Skies research. There is the kind of Radio 3 Royal Opera House defence, that this is part of what makes us a civilised society. The great challenge to one scientist before an, an American congressional committee, what is the relevance of your research to the defence of America? To which he replied, no relevance other than it makes America worth defending. Um, so there is that kind of answer that you can make. Uh, there is another type of answer, which is there is a kind of growing coral reef of knowledge, and every deposit, every little polyps that goes into the growing coral reef, in some way or other, enhances an understanding of the world and therefore is ultimately useful. Caught in that brilliant epigram of Abraham Flexner in the 1930s, who remarked on the usefulness of useless knowledge. Uh, and I had an example of this talking to a Nobel Prize winner in economics, who really got it for his work in maths and game theory, Robert Alman, who said the piece of mathematical theory that he was proudest of 
was a work of a mathematical theory on the asphericity of knots, trying to write the mathematical formula that describes a certain sort of knot. And he had prided himself on its complete irrelevance. It was simply a mathematical puzzle that he was interested in. Until 20 years later, his grandson phones him from university and says, Grandad, do you know that paper that you wrote on the asphericity of knots? It's being used in my course on applied genetics to help us model DNA. So there's always the argument that we will, that however useless it may appear to be, it will eventually turn out to be useful. <coughs> However, Haldane had a different account, and this is what I want briefly to focus on, because Haldane has, as Mark rightly says, a kind of two-stroke model. On the one hand, there is the research without any ministerial intervention funded out of this separate science budget, but there is also the departmental budgets, the departmental purchase of applied R&D relevant for the purposes of those departments. And he always envisaged, therefore, public funding for research coming in two different ways in accordance with two different principles. And what I noticed in my day as science minister, um, and, I was, uh, and I'd like to reflect in a moment on my experiences, was that the, the scandal in the British system is the way in which departments are such shockingly poor custodians of their R&D responsibilities. With the exception of the NHS and its R&D budget, and to some extent the MOD, Whitehall departments have been as bad at promoting research as British business has been. Uh, and I have to say, with greatest respect to Claire, who's here, Claire Mariotti from DEFRA, DEFRA is a case study, and it is, I don't, I don't identify DEFRA because she's here. I identify DEFRA because the Rothschild report, Rothschild had been the chairman of the Agricultural Research Council before he wrote his report. And Rothschild's model proposed in the 1970s was to rejuvenate, he saw himself as rejuvenating the whole day model, was that the, some of the Research Council money should be allocated back to departments, so departments should spend it on applied purposes. Britain needed applied R&D, and instead of expecting research councils protected behind the holding principle to do this, departments should do it. And, he, and the DEFRA and other departments got the, some money from research councils. There was approximately a 20% cut to, be, to revive departmental R&D budgets. And what happens over subsequent years, departments cut their R&D budgets. So the applied R&D function atrophies. So what you then find as the science minister is that a massive frustration across Whitehall that why have you, you have ended up as the only custodian, basically, of a science budget, and you're endlessly under pressure. Why are you protecting it all behind this absurd holding principle? Why can't we say we at Department for Education want to understand social mobility? So why don't you, O oh Science Minister, please tell ESRC they need to spend money on social mobility? Or why can't we get the BBSRC, the Biological Sciences Research Council, to do more work on improving the the uh, productivity of British farms by better crops, tell them to do it, will it? To which I would say, look, I've got this budget, what's happened to your budget? We need a deep, this is, it's not that the British model was never supposed to be all of science hidden behind the holding principle, it was seen as part of a wider Whitehall settlement. And so when I was able to secure applied funding, 
One of the things we did, I have to say, and again, agriculture is a, is a good example. I remember the negotiations with the Chancellor, where I went to him and said, we are doing very badly on applied R&D for agriculture. And you can see the effects. Productivity in British agriculture has barely increased for 20 years. We're now off the pace. We used to think we had world-class productive agriculture. We no longer do. We need some applied R&D funding. I was asking for it because I didn't want to keep on having to raid the BBSRC budget for it. But we can't trust DEFRA with it. If DEFRA get it, it'll have disappeared in the next cuts round. So separately ring-fence it as a budget jointly managed by us and DEFRA so we can invest in applied agricultural R&D. But if we want them to do things like this, you can't give it back to the Whitehall departments because they will use it in the next cuts exercise as the first round of cuts. And that is the underlying problem in the British model, that departments won't do it. And I know one of the things that, under Mark... Mark's leadership we want to do at UKRI is try to do deals with departments, have a bit of co-funding to say to them, right, you're sitting in the Department for Education, social mobility is a personal preoccupation and interest of Damien Hines, put some money into researching and understanding social mobility, and the ESRC might well co-fund, I'm looking across at Jennifer Rubin. Those are the kind of conversations we need to have to rebuild a Whitehall appetite for applied R&D. Finally, let me just uh, reflect on my own modest, modest role in this history, which was that we needed an update of the Haldane Principle. The Haldane Principle was uh, uh, rather hard to pin down and had not been formulated for a long time. So we did try uh, to produce in a written answer a statement of the Haldane Principle, which came out in uh, late 2010, early 2011. And what I was trying to do in this was, of course, to, to state the, the principle that um, uh, governments uh, would not uh, intervene in specific decisions, but also to be realistic about the kind of things which I think politicians can legitimately do in a democracy, even when it comes to the science budget. And, I, and so we stated, ministers have a legitimate role in decisions that involve long-term and large-scale commitments of national significance. So if you are planning a very large-scale research facility, it does seem reasonable that that should be seen as part of a wider approach to the economy. And can't just be, you can't just imagine a bill for hundreds of millions of pounds for a new research facility being signed off without ministerial involvement. And also, in, I referred specifically to involvement in international research treaties, where again, often, especially in a post-Brexit world, science is an important part of soft power. Participating in intergovernmental science organisations, deciding how, what level of funding to put in, negotiating to try to secure the headquarters, as we did for the Square Kilometre Array um, at Jodrell Bank. Those type of negotiations are naturally part of what ministers do. I can still remember the minute from the Prime Minister's office, who had been off having a meeting with the Swedish Prime Minister, and the Swedish Prime Minister had raised with him something which nobody at Number 10 recognised. In fact, I remember still, the Number 10 notes are normally so precise. I think they couldn't spell it, and there was a query in brackets afterwards. They said he was very preoccupied with the international spellation source, which nobody at Number 10 understood, and the PM didn't know what he was on about. But they sent me a note, please would I look into the international spellation source, because the Swedish Prime Minister was excised about it and asking the British Prime Minister about it. And uh, I won't go into the details now, but you found that there was indeed something that both made sense in scientific terms, but also in diplomatic terms, which takes you into the international, took us into that uh, Swedish-Danish research project. So those are the kind of ways in which ministers inevitably do get involved. 
What are the tricky issues for the future? Uh, I would say in my time, and I think it is as acute now, the most sensitive area is geography. What goes where? It's sensitive at the EU level. It's sensitive at the national level. On a particular interpretation of excellence, you could well end up spending the vast bulk of your science and research budget in the golden triangle of London, Oxford, Cambridge. Is that the kind of country we want to live in? Are we entitled to place some strategic bets and strategic investments in R&D elsewhere in the country? And if so, on what basis? I would say, in my experience and subsequently, that is the point at which scientific assessments of quality and what elected politicians think as legitimate issues of national priority and national resource most uncomfortably come into conflict. Uh, looking to the future, there is a clear role for ministers in the balance of disciplines, the balance of funding between research councils, which I looked at in 2010. Uh, it does move around, contrary, contrary to some of the accounts, it's, it's permanently fixed. But we did take a decision in 2010 not to shift it. And those are the type of decisions, again, when it's legitimate to take a view about national priorities. So I would conclude that we are fortunately, thank heavens, still a long way from those horror stories of what's happening in Australia at the moment. But we do continue to need a legitimate a mature understanding of the legitimate areas where politics and public policy priorities shape decisions on large-scale scientific investment. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, well, I very much appreciated uh, Mark and David's uh, reminding us of the wonderful genius of the his and the history of the Haldane principle and that moment of incredible institutional creativity uh, that coincided with the Fabians and the post-World War I period. I, I wanted to reflect a bit on um, the more modern consequences of, of that, although I can't resist because I actually have it here in front of me having one more quote, uh, which is uh, from the document that Mark referred to, which was not the official Haldane report, but the private papers that uh, were around it. Uh, and in words that just on this particular day, on this in this particular place, resonate. And it's almost as if he's sort of rebutting Goh's ridiculous comments on experts. He says, Haldane adds in a private note, a prime minister is chosen as the leader of the nation, largely because of his gifts as its spokesman. But he has to shape policy, and to this end requires the most highly skilled assistance if he is not to be a bungler. Anyway. <laughs> um, so in the Institute for Government, where we're supposed to care about evidence-based policy, it seems uh, a very fitting moment to be celebrating the Haldane Principle. I wanted to say a few things. First, in terms of the, the modern interpretation of the principle, I think there are two key aspects. One is the depoliticization of decision making around research funding and the points that David was making about ministers not getting involved in the, in the nitty gritty of choosing what research happens. And the second, <coughs> excuse me, is the dual funding stream model, uh, where you have some funding which is, uh, which is 
create, you know, curiosity-driven, bottom-up, and another stream which is more directed by government strategic priorities. And I think the current implementation of the Haldane principle, and I should acknowledge David's key role in enshrining it in the Higher Education Act, uh, and Mark's key role in implementing it through, uh, through UKRI. But I think the current debate is one about balance. Uh, and I think if you talk to the academic community, there is a perception at the moment that the balance is shifting in favor of more research being directed by government priorities. And while there has been a massive increase in research funding, at the margin, more of that increase has gone into things that are directed by government strategic priorities, be it the Global Challenges Fund, the Industrial Strategies Challenge Fund, and so on. And it is also why, in the academic community today, people love the European Research Council funding, because it is purely curiosity and excellence driven. And that is why people are so exercised, one of the many reasons people are so exercised about Brexit, because much of the academic community fears the loss of what is considered the most desirable and the most attractive pot of funding out there for research. And I guess the question I would put on the table is, have we got the balance right? Have we got the balance, has the, and these things, you know, having been in Whitehall and knowing these things are pendulum shifts, has the pendulum shifted a little too far in favor of government determined priorities? And, uh, and is, for example, the, the, the big debate around QR funding, which those in the know will know is the, is the sort of purest institutional funding that is given to universities, symptomatic of that. And I'll just give one example, and then I'll, I'll, I'll close, from another part of the Whitehall universe, when I used to be permanent secretary at DFID. We always made sure that we had a dual funding stream for charities and NGOs. So we funded charities and NGOs as institutions. We assessed which institutions were the most excellent, which were best performing, delivered results, had good systems for measuring their impact, et cetera, et cetera. And then we had project-based funding. You will deliver a food program in Ethiopia, or we need to have a new water system introduced in UP in India, et cetera, et cetera. And it was, sometimes people would ask me internationally, why does the UK have the best international NGOs in the world? And I would often say, because we have a dual funding system. We support excellent institutions and project-based funding. And I strongly feel that striking that balance is key for having excellent institutions. And the older I get, the more I think institutions are really the most important things of all. And these days, Given the current political climate and the fairly, and I don't speak just of the UK, but we are living in dangerous times. And, and in times when political control of ideas are, are very real, when you do have anti-expert populist sentiment, when you do have climate deniers, I think we need to ask ourselves, do we need to tilt the balance in a particular direction given the politics of the moment that we are in? And is there a danger of tilting the balance uh, even more toward politically driven government priorities? I'll stop there.
Thank you very much, Manoush. And I'd actually like to come to David and Mark to reflect on that question that Manoush posed. You both stated your support for the idea that there is a line between government providing overall strategic direction, but not de determining whether a particular research project should be funded. But in practice, that's quite a fuzzy line. And do you accept Manoush's characterization that that has shifted more towards greater government direction about the types of areas that research funding should be spent on? And if so, do you think it's defensible that it has moved in that direction? Why is that the right place for us to be now? Well, well maybe I'll have the, the first go. So, I mean, the, the first thing to agree is that there, there is a balancing question. Um, with respect to your ERC point, which I think is really important, I think at the moment that European funding is part of the balance. Mm. And depending on what happens, then that will need to be taken into account. And it's perfectly clear that that is a part of the mechanism that maybe is therefore a bit underbalanced in the UK system at the moment, and we will need to increase it in order to deal with that, either by association with Europe or, uh, if that's not possible for some reason, uh, by developing similar schemes. So, I mean, I think that it's an important point, but I just think it is part of the balance. Um, has the balance shifted a bit? Yes, it has, but I wouldn't say that it was actually determined entirely by top-down government priorities. Questions arise from many sources. And so if you take the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund, let's just take one example, the Faraday Challenge, which is around better batteries. That actually started as an academic proposal for an electrochemistry institute. And then the question is, okay, electrochemistry is very important. What questions are you looking at? And, and so I think that a lot of what you're calling government priorities isn't really. It's actually come from a variety of sources. Is it broadly aligned to the four pillars of the industrial strategy? Yes, but then look at those pillars, clean growth, healthy aging, future mobility, and then sort of data science in the broader sense. So I, I think it's quite a sort of slightly spurious discussion we sometimes have between top down and bottom up. And I do think that the job of a good funder is to catalyze people being able to do things. And some of it, I think, is also the balance between the individual or the small group investigator and the large collaboration. Um, but I, I, I think, nevertheless, I would accept the characterization that there is more of a balance, perhaps towards the innovation side of the fence. But then if you look at where we were coming from, we were coming from a system which was where the research councils were, and still are, very much the dominant part of the, the funding balance. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I, mean, I agree with what Mark says. I mean, what we've, the, the environment is one in which, since 2010, we've had flat cash for some of the basic science. In 2010, to be honest, it could have been a lot worse. Uh, but after eight years, flat cash is really does make a lot of people in the science and research community feel that things are tight. The, the good news is that especially recently, <coughs> I got some incrementally, but recently there's been a particularly big increase in funding for science and R&D. But ministers said, as they were perfectly entitled to, basically we want this extra money to go into the applied side of things. Um, and so that creates <coughs> this tension of flat cash on the, if you like, the more whole, it's more complicated than this, but basically flat cash for the whole Dany stuff and extra money for people who are doing applied R&D. However, as Mark said, some of that, <coughs> actually, when you look at the behind the challenges, some of it is um, uh, curiosity-driven. Uh, 
Uh, and if you look at the balance of UK funding and what you're trying to do <coughs> to promote business investment as well, putting some of that money into the applied science, I think, is a, is a defensible decision. If all the way up to the 2.4% target, which is a fantastic target to have, all of it goes into applied, some, then the grievance will become legitimate and genuine. But at the moment, it's been that the extra has gone in this way. And I mean, just on the point, it's, uh, the, we're, we're supplying two things through our funding. We're supplying skilled people, and we shouldn't forget that. So one of the really important reasons that companies will invest their R&D in, in any place is because actually there are first-rate investigators, many of whom will have trained in a discovery environment, who may then apply some of their work in business. And so I, we, we neglect the discovery side absolutely at our peril, I think. Do you want to come back on any of that, Manoush? I, I would just say we have to, this is something we need to watch. Sure. I mean, clearly, if Brexit yeah. happens, I think we need yeah. a fundamental yeah. rethink yeah. of the balance of resources yeah. that we've got across the research landscape. Yeah. I think, um, I would just, I, I would be vigilant about things like QR and the pure curiosity stuff. I mean, the example you gave, David, was wonderful about the spherical <laughs> mathematics, <laughs> you know, the knots. Um, because we are often surprised at where the applications come from. And so the, you know, the solution to healthy aging or, um, or to batteries, for that matter, may come from a completely unexpected place. Um, so I just, I just but, but say guard against that. Making <laughs> me that actually we shouldn't have to defend it even in those terms. And so the contribution of, for example, the Arts and Humanities Council to the work on Hokusai contributed to making a stellar exhibition at the British Museum. Right. And there is a cultural value in knowledge alone. Yeah, agree. Thanks. Well, I'd like to now open it to questions from all of you. Uh, I've got one just there. There should be some microphones there. Microphones? Sorry, <laughs> Emily. <laughs> Two spaces to your right, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm David Walker. I was a member of the Economic Social Research Council. Um, within the last month, um, a f an employee of the Bank of England, who coincidentally bears the name Hal Dane, has been appointed to run what purports to be an intensive search for better knowledge about the reasons for the UK's productivity performance. And even though ONS has revised the figures, it's still pretty dire in a relative sense. Hasn't Andy Haldane got a right to expect the possibility of a mobilization of knowledge that yes. would help him, the UK government, whatever of whatever situation, address what is profoundly a problem in UK public policy and economy now and for the years to come? And so the question really is, to whom legitimately might he, using him as an example, look for that mobilization of knowledge? Um, I'll collect a couple of questions. Um, <coughs> uh, David, say the I'm moving into this position now where we're putting more funds against uh, government objectives. I think this is slightly the wrong question. The question should be, where do you put uh, research money uh, into what projects which will scientifically most likely lead to improvements? Uh, in government objectives. Mm. To give an example for this, uh, I think there is a real opportunity now 
to you, we've, got, we've seen neuroscience move into the area mm. of psychiatry. Uh, if this turns out to be a really fruitful area, it will hugely help uh, government uh, uh, policy. So we should challenge scientists more to come up with what are the scientific areas which, if they're successful, will lead to achievement of government objectives, which I think is slightly different from saying, we'll allocate money against uh, company, uh, uh, government objectives. Is there a third question taking this first round? Okay. Uh, Daniel Cressy from Research Fortnite. Related to David's comment about departments not spending their own money on research. Uh, Paul Nightingale recently said that he thought departments outlining their research priorities came with a Haldane issue. I wonder what you make of that and how departments can explain what they need to researchers without in some way treading on toes in a Haldane sense. Great. Um, Mark, do you want to start? With yes, I mean, I think the answer on the question of productivity, which is a good question, I think, uh, uh, Jennifer Rubin can answer in the next session, actually, um, because, uh, but I think it's, uh, and it, it really it turns on the third point as well. Um, I don't see any issue at all with government departments setting out their areas of research interest. I mean, isn't the point about research? Research is about answering questions. And that's the key thing. You know, when you're deciding whether to fund a research project or not, it is actually on the quality of the, the team, the investigators, and on the interest of their question. And questions can come from many places, and so there are clearly questions about productivity. But if DEFRA is interested in bovine tuberculosis, which it might have quite good reasons to be, why is that not an interesting set of questions? And I don't think in any sense that breaches Haldane. And that's the whole point about top-down, bottom-up. Questions come from everywhere. And most top-down questions, actually, at the end of the day, start bottom-up. No minister ever got out of bed and said, let's sequence the human genome, I don't think. Um, Can I just yeah. um, push you on that? Because obviously yeah. we have a question from UKRI about the extent mm. to which you allocate funding on the basis of does this meet a government department identified research priority? How do you balance that? So, so that we have decision? a one very specific fund, which is the Strategic Priorities Fund. And a part of that, and it is only a part of that, is specifically in relation to those sorts of questions. Um, but these are interesting questions. I mean, the point is, if they are... If you like, it's application-inspired, but fundamental discovery research. So I don't think this is a tension. And on, on, on David Sainsbury's important point, which I think actually interestingly turns on Haldane's point about the broader the scope of the research, the interest to more departments it's like to be. So if you take the neuroscience point, it's not only mental health, it's education, um, it's issues around neuroeconomics and gambling. Uh, neuroscience particularly with sort of modern technologies, is, is pointing to answers to questions in all sorts of places. Um, but again, I, I mean, it's, it's fundamentally, you know, if you like, the biggest top-down question of all is to understand the basis of cognition. And, of course, that is a really, really difficult question. There are several Nobel Prizes on the way to that one. Um, but there are so many questions that are relevant to so many departments. How do people make choices? How do people think about, you know, we talk a lot about inequality, the issue for most people isn't inequality, it's unfairness. And there is actually a whole neuroscience of unfairness as well. Um, so it seems to me that actually with a lot of this, we can have our cake and eat it, actually. Manoush, do you want to perhaps particularly well, on David yeah, Sainsbury's so question about... I was going to agree with you because I think the question isn't 
how can research answer questions that government is asking now? The question is really, we should be funding research that government should be asking in future. I often get asked, how can we get research to feed into policy better? And having been in the policy world, I know that the timeframes are completely different. In the policy world, the minister needs a brief maximum in three or four days. Uh, in the research world, things take much, much longer. So what actually happens? What research does get in, in included in policy is that you hoover up everything that's out there. You don't do new research to respond to the minister's request. And so that's exactly what Andy Haldane is going to do. He's going to come to the LSE and he's going to hoover up all the research that I've already got at the LSE on productivity, of which there is plenty. And then he's going to write a report based on the existing body of research that's already been funded probably five years ago by the ESRC. That's how it really works. And so I completely agree with you. I think trying to tailor current research funding priorities to what ministers are asking today is, is foolish and it's a waste of money. One has to have a bit, and that's why your jobs at the research councils are a bit harder. But, but I also think it's why funding core research, because there are tons of economists working on productivity issues right now, and funding that core research, that is where you're going to get the really good new ideas about how to solve the productivity problem. But with respect, Manish, it's a bit of both. When you've got an Ebola outbreak in West Africa, and actually it's perfectly reasonable that you get on and you do some research, and actually real-time research in West Africa was actually helpful. But it was not... Uh, it helped define how we would respond to the next Ebola crisis. It was much more, you know, the research platform that was created to deal with the Ebola thing drew in a whole bunch of existing academics who drew on their existing research base. They didn't have time to do new research in order to it's respond bit, to it's Ebola. It's a bit of both, and of course the next outbreak is now. I mean, we're into well, a quite, year or two later. So. Quite, quite. Two, we've got to disentangle two things that happened in recent British public policy history here. The first thing that has happened is the creation of UKRI, largely driven by an argument that interdisciplinary research lost out from the old arrangements. I personally think that if you look at the reasons for the difficulties in doing interdisciplinary research, the structure of the research councils isn't a high, isn't a top reason, much more to do with the structure of academic journals, where universities are organized. But anyway, UKRI was set up separately <coughs> Industrial strategy, which Vince and I were pro, and then uh, Sajid was not, and Greg is strongly pro, industrial strategy comes back on the agenda. So you have a new institution, UKRI, and a revived policy priority for Bayes, industrial strategy. What has happened, and it's a big decision, it could have gone differently, <coughs> is UKRI has become the repository of spending on industrial strategy. Now, it could have gone differently. You could have said, we're going to do industrial strategy, some other separate entity, and UKRI carry on doing pure research. But, we've, but UKRI, almost by happy accident, has found itself the government's vehicle for delivering industrial strategy. Now, that cuts both ways. My view is the research community should seize this as a fantastic opportunity that a body set up for the promotion of British research has been given this core responsibility for industrial strategy. And shouldn't, and the Haldane principle is protected because the research council's core funding, most of it is behind the Haldane principle. But it is certainly, this combination of two things converging has led us 
to a very unusual and interesting British policy experiment. A couple of other quick comments. I think, my, I think Paul Nightingale, I, I think the fact that departments are setting up their research priorities is entirely a good thing. And one interesting side effect, looking particularly at David and his background at the SRC, um, a surprising number of their research priorities involve social science. So whereas the official rhetoric from some ministers is STEM is the future, what we need is STEM. When you actually look at the problems that Whitehall is focused on, a lot of them require understandings from social science. And my view is it's particularly strong message for people in social scientists. And finally, where I do actually have some similar, some of the minutiae concerns and where the ERC is good, and if we were tragically to lose access to the ERC, we would, I hope, create some British equivalent. There is one problem in Whitehall of uh, in research funding of gigantism. <laughs> and that's partly driven by endless pressure to save on overheads. So having public employees sitting in a research council, as staff as a research council, allocating a grant for £10,000 or £50,000 is very hard to defend to the beady-eyed um, guys from the cabinet office saying justify your overhead costs. So one thing that happens when you're cutting admin staff is you look for fewer, bigger grants. Mm. So one thing that researchers are unhappy about is when they want £10,000 to fly to spend a month in an obscure archive that a historian hasn't previously investigated um, in, the part, in a part of Spain, applying for £10,000 for such a research grant is virtually impossible. If you say you want a £5 million fund for a centre for <coughs> Hispanic studies, which is going to transform our bilateral relationship with Spain, then you're in business. And, they, and that, is, that is a way in which administrative pressures for quotes efficiency drive what some members of the academic community regard as perverse behaviour, and that is a problem. May I just come back on a couple of things, actually? I mean, firstly, just making the point again with Manoush that, the, you, I mean, your hypothesis were is that the discontinuity between the length of time it takes for research and its application means that it will never be in real time. But actually, time. I'll be interested to hear what David says about that, because in your book, as Britain is a warfare state, you know, that is quite clearly a situation in which the two become synchronised. And when you look at Haldane, who actually congratulated the Medical Research Committee on the work they had done in real time in the First World War, they had done things around blood transfusion, surgery, trench foot. So you can do research in real time, but not always. And, and I think in, with some of the social questions, one can do the research in real time. But I, I just slightly want to um, not characterise... Um, UK research innovation, as it were, simply as a tool of the industrial strategy. Because <laughs> if you remember, which you do, Paul Nurse's report, which was written in 2015, was some time ago. It was before the industrial strategy. It was actually before yeah. Brexit. And the principles that were set out in that are the principles that we're discussing now. And, you know, I actually take the industrial strategy as an opportunity because how can you have an industrial strategy that isn't founded on research on science, technology, engineering, the social sciences, the arts, and the design. Mm. And so is research and innovation at the core of the industrial strategy? Yes, it is. Um, is a significant part of that £2 billion attached to, you know, in the highest sense, the four pillars of the industrial strategy? Yes, it is. Are there many opportunities within that for supporting that breadth of, uh, of knowledge creation and then, or discovery and then 
its application. Yes, we've got you know a 700 million in a future leaders fellowship program. Um, many of the questions around the strategic mm. priority funds are things like um, uh, the human cell atlas, for example, a very fundamental question. And so uh, it, we're not simply, uh, uh, simply is not the right word, we're not, as it were, a pure creature of the industrial strategy, but are we an important foundation of any industrial strategy? Then I think the answer to that is yes, because how can you have it? It just goes back to the quotes that I came up with, which is, you know, the future of our country is dependent on our ability to generate knowledge and use it wisely. So I'm afraid we are now out of time, so sorry to Vicky and others who might have had uh, final questions. Um, I want to give you all a, a chance for a, a final one minute of comments. Perhaps you could just summarise where, what's your level of satisfaction with the current relationship of government funding of research and what do you think is the next big challenge? So David, do you want to start and then come to Mark and then I'll let Manoush... I, I think that the, ch the challenges are incredibly important, but the challenges are not the whole story. And the, the, the industrial strategy, I, I think, is, it, it is partly about challenges. It's partly about places. And we now have in UKRI, for the first time, some funding which is explicitly place-based. Uh, it's partly about sectors of the economy. Uh, and it's partly about general purpose technologies. And all those are ways in which research can be applied. And having all those in our toolbox at UKRI as means of, of delivering uh, use and impact from our research uh, is incredibly important, but it does not mean that the entire UKRI budget goes in that way. There is also, quite rightly, um, uh, blue skies and curiosity-driven science. Um, well, I, I think probably the important thing to remember is actually that the public funding of research around the world is a 20th century phenomenon. And if there's one thing that's absolutely the case, that ministers have an inalienable right to decide how much to spend on it. At the end of the day, it is taxpayers' money, and they are going to decide how much to spend. Um, I think that the argument in the Treasury is completely accepted that there is a total market failure, private market failure, effectively, around knowledge discovery. And so there really isn't an argument that that's something government should fund. It is all about the quantum. But I think in terms of that relationship between the freedom to allocate to the brightest minds versus the influence of ministers on the distribution is a constant piece of work. By the way, the biggest threat to the holding, and to be fair to them, we always recognise this was a bit special. Uh, by far the biggest political interest in any area of science fund was spending by the British Atla Antarctic Survey in the South Atlantic. <laughs> the Foreign Office would like to have as many scientists as possible counting penguins, preferably manually, in pencil on a notebook, on every possible island in the South Atlantic, uh, through all the winter as well, if possible. And they regularly made it clear to me that this was their overwhelming priority for science spending. Can't think why. I don't know if LSE employs any uh, scientists we in that capacity. We have no penguin counters at the LSE, sadly. I'm sure we could find a way to move it in, but anyway. Um, I, mean, I guess I'd just say we are in a much better place. The target is great. You know, we've got Haldane, you know, in legislation now. I think in terms of the, the architecture, we're we're in a we're in a very good place. I think the challenges really are being vigilant about the balance, and just keeping an eye on that and making sure we've got that right. Uh, 
And I think the other two big challenges are, you know, why does the private sector in the UK underinvest in research so outrageously compared to their competitors and their peers? Uh, and why don't we get much productivity? I think those are the two things that I put out there as the, as the big, big challenges. I would agree with David that if you look at what the returns to social science research are and where, you know, so many of the big impacts that we are likely to get from scientific innovations are going to come from social science applications. You know, driverless cars, there's no way, you know, the technology may be great. Look at landing airplanes. Airplanes can land themselves, but we don't have the regulatory, social, and political acceptance that planes can land themselves. And so the pilots have to still land the planes 35 years late after the technology existed. GMO crops are another good example. And so unless we think about the social, political, economic context in which scientific innovation is happening, the returns to those investments will be low. Well, thank you very much. Before we hand over to the next panel, please just join me in thanking our panelists. Okay, thank you very much. So, uh, welcome to our second panel. Uh, we'll be picking up on many of those themes and issues discussed in that uh, fascinating panel, um, looking at the uh, sort of questions of how research is funded, um, but also how government uses research and continuing to look at some of those historical lessons. Um, but we'll also be diving a bit more deeply into how this works in practice. So taking the sort of perspective of a, a government department and a research council and look at sort of how some of these questions work. Uh, so the questions I've posed to my panel are, what was Haldane really arguing for and how has that been interpreted since? So we've, we've discussed some of that already. Uh, David will respond. Um, how has the relationship between departments and research councils changed uh, over time and what, what does it look like now? Um, and how does that translate into the day-to-day -day reality of policy making? So how much progress have we made towards the organised acquisition of facts and information that Haldane called for? Uh, how much policy is really evidence-based? Um, so to answer those questions and others from you, uh, I'm delighted to be joined by a really excellent uh, panel. So on the far left is uh, Professor David Edgerton. Uh, David is the Hans Rousing Professor of the History of Science and Technology and Professor of Modern British History at King's College London. So he's a historian who's written widely on science policy, industrial policy, technology, warfare, many other topics. Uh, his most recent book, which Mark kindly cited already, The Rise and Fall of the British Nation, is a really interesting reassessment of 20th century British history. Um, but he'll also be, be well known to many of you for his, uh, for his work, and particularly relevant to this conference, on the, the invention of the Haldane Principle and these other myths around uh, science policy. Uh, on my right is uh, Claire Moriarty. So Claire was appointed Permanent Secretary at DEFRA in 2015. Uh, she was previously a senior official in the Department for Transport, the Ministry of Justice, uh, and held roles in the Department of Health. Um, and she's also been on secondment at the, in the NHS and the UCL School of Public Policy. Uh, Claire's also on the Council of CSAP, the Cambridge Centre for uh, Science and Policy. And on my near left is Professor Jennifer Rubin. So Jennifer is Executive Chair of the Economic and Social Research Council and Professor of Public Policy at King's College London. Uh, she's also a member of the Independent Industrial Strategy Council, uh, again, which came up in our, our first panel, and she's UKRI's champion for diversity, equality, and inclusion. Uh, before taking up the role at ESRC, uh, Jennifer was director of the Policy Institute at King's, and prior to that, she was an executive at RAND. Um, so David's gonna speak first for about 10 minutes. 
he will address this question of what exactly Haldane was arguing for, picking up on some of the historical arguments that uh, Mark and David Willits were making, uh, and also looking at the balance between departmental research and what research, or what research councils have done over time. Uh, Claire will speak second, also for around 10 minutes. So Claire's going to re reflect on her career in the civil service and some of the sort of most divisive and high-profile uh, sort of debates around scientific evidence and its use in uh, policy making. And I suspect she might also want to come back to David Willits on his challenge uh, around departmental research budgets. Uh, and then Jennifer's going to offer some reflections drawing on her experience uh, funding research um, uh, at the ESRC and as an academic trying to influence policy making. Um, so you can f uh, still tweet. Uh, the hashtag is um, hashtag Haldane100. Uh, and without any further ado, David. Thank you very much uh, indeed. The main point I, I want to make is that there's been a serious problem with our understanding of research policy. Go to health policy, or defense policy, or economic policy. The quality of discussion of research policy, especially in the past, but also today, has been frankly low. Uh, ironically low, you might think. The uh, repeated invocation of something called the Haldane Principle since the 1960s uh, is, I think, an example of that, but not the only one. Uh, the constant misleading references to the white heat of a technological revolution uh, would be another. Uh, we've had, indeed, a form of historical magical thinking. We've come to research policy. I'm really delighted that, uh, that, that, that today a certain kind of clarity and, and, and realism has kind of returned to research policy, perhaps for the first time since Haldane in 19. Uh, 18. And I think it's really important that we have uh, uh, clarity around research policy. Let me start with the, the Haldane principle itself. Something with that name is enshrined in the 2017 Act. It was invented, this Haldane principle, in the 1960s as a summary of what Lord Haldane concluded about research councils. It was then promptly forgotten but it was resuscitated today by David, certainly, as a Haldane principle, and one of three Haldane principles, if I counted correctly, that Mark referred to uh, uh, today. Uh, but I say that that Haldane principle uh, was um, invented and then promptly forgotten. It was also invented in, in the early 1960s as something that Haldane did not argue for, and it was in something like this invented sense that has been a feature of research policy discussion since. But it doesn't even have the merit of being a strong and stable principle. Its meaning has changed rather radically uh, in those uh, discussions. In the 1917, uh, 2017 Act, it amounts to something like peer review, but not even that, really. So. It's rather odd to have a major area of um, government policy, one supposedly particularly connected to knowledge, uh, to, to have some basic discussions uh, on such a flimsy uh, basis, until, I say, today, where we have three uh, important principles, and uh, only one of which, or perhaps two of which, should be associated with the name uh, uh, Haldane, um, uh, but that's another uh, matter. Now, the 
misunderstanding of what Haldane might have been saying or, or not saying is, I think, part of a larger misunderstanding about the history of British research policy. It consists in assuming that research councils were the only research agencies in government. And we heard very clearly today uh, from, from, from David, that that, and indeed from Mark, that that's not the case. And indeed, the changing balance between departmental and research council funding has been a crucial issue, and I'll come back to that uh, in just a, uh, a minute. Now, in Haldane's time, before uh, uh, 1918 indeed, and much later, departmental research programs were typically very much larger than research council programs. In 1918, uh, Lord Haldane would have been very aware of the largest departmental funder in the British government, which was not the DSIR, it was the Ministry of Munitions. Yeah. Massively outspent any other government uh, body. He would also have been aware from his time as Secretary of State for War that the War Office had a major research effort before 1914, um, designing, for example, airplanes at Farnborough. And as Secretary of State, he intervened very directly to change the research agenda of Farnborough. So he was very well aware of this. He's not, he's not creating departmental research uh, uh, at all. Nor, indeed, is he creating research council research because the research councils were uh, founded during, the first one was founded during the war, um, uh, uh, as the DSIR. And what he's doing in 1918 is saying, look, the MRC, the Medical Research Committee, which has this, this, um, um, this strange position in, 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 in sort of semi-out of government, ought to be reconstituted on the same basis as the DSIR and put under a non-departmental minister, the Lord President of uh, the Council. So what he's, what he's saying, and this, this was uh, elucidated very well um, by both uh, our speakers uh, earlier, is that most research will be done by departments uh, in accordance with departmental policy, but some research, cross-cutting research, should be in the hands of a non-departmental minister, uh, uh, minister uh, via an advisory council for each of these research councils, but not, crucially, an advisory council made up only of researchers. We forget that Lord Balfour, former prime minister, uh, was chairman of the medical research council, and indeed famously reported to himself as Lord President of the Council. Uh, 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 in the in the nineteen um, in the nineteen in the nineteen twenties, and business people uh, were a crucial part of this uh, of this mix. It is not councils of researchers, much less um, academic researchers. Now, the Haldane principle was, uh, according to, uh, to to people. Uh, or this, this, this basic structure which Haldane is, is, is uh, uh, elucidating, um, um, uh, uh, systematizing, is criticized in the 1960s by important figures in research uh, policy because it's rather abused. Why should transport research be under the DSI, under Lord President, and not the Ministry of Transport? 
And indeed, this is one of the important reasons that the whole Holden structure, or much of it, of research councils is got rid of in 1964 with the creation of the Ministry of Technology. And indeed, the putting of the research councils reshaped into the Department of Education and Science, an administrative department. And this is precisely what Hailsham is objecting to uh, when he invents the Haldane principle, as he now calls it, of this autonomy of the research councils, not the autonomy of government research. And indeed, that um, the book that was referred to is really rather interesting because while he celebrates the research council system, he is actually deeply concerned that the British military industrial complex massive funder of research, much more important than the research councils, is encroaching on the academic freedom of British researchers. So that's, that's there. It's, 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 uh, it's, 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 uh, it's recognized. The, the Haldane um, uh, 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 structure for research councils is only ever part of the machinery of government for research, never the, um, uh, the whole. Indeed, what we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years is the research councils emerge as very significant uh, funders, uh, of, take a very significant proportion of government funding for research. It would not have been the, the, the case in the 1940s, uh, 1950s. In wartime, the main research is not done by the research councils. The MRC is trivial in both, in both world wars. They do some important things. The DSIR is a post box for the British Atomic Energy Project, not, not the organizer of that project. It's got nothing to do with aeronautical research. That's too strong a little bit, but not, uh, nothing very, um, very uh, significant. Today, the research councils uh, have a much wider remit uh, uh, in effect, and are loaded with what I think are fantasy objectives of transforming the British economy. They can't do it. Yeah? Uh, but research policy has become a substitute, I would say, for a real industrial strategy. And in my book, actually, I give examples of uh, just this practice in the United Kingdom before 1914. Uh, Lloyd George created a development commission Part of its function was to fund agricultural research, not because he thought that research would transform agriculture, but it was a very good argument against uh, tariffs in food. You know, it's an alternative. It's a it's a it's masterly inactivity by funding uh, by funding um, uh, research. We have um, another structural issue that's very difficult to, to grasp: the conflation of many different aspects of science-state relations. It seems to me we need to differentiate between scientific advice and structures for scientific advice, uh, executive agencies for research in government, and also to differentiate between research done extra and intramurally. And this is, I think, another very important reason why the relations of science uh, uh, and government, obviously multiple ones, cannot be reduced, should not be reduced, to a single governing principle. So the whole idea of finding one principle is, uh, it seems to me, utterly uh, misguided and a source of massive uh, confusion. Let me give you a, a little illustration of this. Um, the Ministry of Technology, Mintech, in the 1960s was by far the largest R&D spender in the United Kingdom. Much of it done internally, the research, much of it done externally. 
It has as its scientific advisor, the then president of the Royal Society, Patrick Blackett. And his advice uh, was that the UK spent too much rather than too little on R&D. And indeed, he sought, uh, with others, to semi-privatise the research labs of the Ministry of Technology and other, um, and other, uh, 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 and other uh, laboratories. So scientific uh, advice is, is not always about promoting research in, 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 in government. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated matter and different from the executive functions of ministries. Let me draw this to a close by uh, coming to the issue of evidence-based policy. It seems to me that research policy is one of the areas in which there is relatively little evidence-based policy, which has a certain irony uh, to it. Uh, there is a lot of magical thinking still. Uh, for example, the belief that there is a positive correlation between national investments in R&D and national rates of economic growth. The economic and scientific advisors to Mintech knew that that wasn't the case in the 1960s. Um, and yet, uh, when one mentions this obvious empirical fact, easily uh, checked, applies today as it did in, in the 1960s, one is met with shock and sometimes derision by even experts in uh, the field. Second point, a lack of reflection on past success or failure of research policy. It's 30 years since the 1987 white paper on civil research and development, 25 since realizing our potential. But we might ask, given the emphasis in policy on the regeneration of the British economy and all that time, has that potential in fact been uh, realized? Yeah. Has British research transformed the productivity of the British economy? Clearly not in the last uh, 10 years, as we were hearing uh, implicitly uh, 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 earlier. But what's really interesting is the resistance to asking the question, where is the evidence? Uh, it's really very strong. And the usual answer is something like this, pulling out an iPhone yeah, and mentioning ARM. Now, as far as I know, ARM was not the, the product, or the chips were not the product of any research council program. Yeah. And indeed, it come before 1990, uh, 1993. So my point is, 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 is simply this. Um, we need a much, much more grown-up, evidence-based conversation about research today, and indeed about its history. It's much more complicated than can be summed up in one principle. Even three principles, I think, would not be uh, enough. But I'm really delighted that at least we have three principles uh, in play rather than just the one. Thank you. Thanks, David. So I'm going to give you a bit of a practitioner's perspective on evidence-based policy making. It feels quite a long way from the rest of the debate, but maybe, uh, maybe it will join itself up uh, magically of its own accord. 
Um, so, so the, the again, having read some of the stuff about the, the, those things which weren't in uh, the whole day report, the bit that struck me was uh, the principle that government and policymakers should develop a habit of mind, a disposition to insist on the systematic study of questions before action is taken. Now, I think that, you know, for me, that is, uh, that's pretty much what we mean by evidence-based policymaking today. <coughs> And uh, it's at the heart of the development of the policy profession, um, whose aim is to improve policy making with better use, uh, ensuring better use of evidence, but also better understanding of the political and democratic context. And I think for me, those two together is part of what makes uh, evidence based poli policy making both very necessary but also quite complicated in government. Um, so let me just kind of give you a few um, uh, kind of examples from my experience in the, uh, in the civil service. Uh, I started out in what was then the DHSS uh, and became uh, the Department of Health, which in, in a period when, uh, no, as people have been saying, when uh, departments did have significant research and development budgets, uh, and particularly in health, uh, we had, you know, we commissioned a lot of research ourselves, we had researchers in-house, we had a Director General for Research and Development. Um, and uh, but, uh, just focusing on a particular period, um, I was in about just over 25 years ago, I was responsible for the prevention of drug misuse. And uh, in that role, we did have a, we had a big interest uh, in research. Uh, we had medical officers at the time, uh, and I worked with a medical officer who uh, was part-time for the department and worked part-time as a clinical academic uh, based at the, um, at the Maudsley. And what that gave me, I mean, it was a seminal experience because, of course, through working with him, I then connected with a whole network of people based at the Maudsley. Uh, no, but the, I mean, the drug, the drug research community was, was not huge. Uh, and over a relatively short period of time, it was possible to get to know, uh, you know the bulk of the people involved in, uh, in research into drug misuse. And what I found was that they were actually really looking for somebody who would engage with them on their research and engage with them on the policy priorities that their research might address. So they were absolutely delighted that I used to sit on the bus, I used to see, sit on the 63 bus in the morning, reading draft research um, uh, reports and commenting back to them. Uh, and I never got the response, well, we don't want you to be shaping our, you know, your research, your government. Actually, they were just genuinely interested to have that connection, to be talking to somebody who was interested in the outcome of the research and how we could use it to shape our policy. And, and what that delivered, I mean, that, you know, that experience of working together, for me, uh, it, it, it generated a lifelong interest in research and in talking to academics. For them, I think it gave them a much better insight into what happened to research. And collectively, we did make policy which was much better than it would have been otherwise. And that was in an area which was quite contested. This was the period when drug policy, uh, when the big fight that was going on between harm reduction and uh, the Just Say No school, uh, the research supported uh, harm reduction, the tendency, there was always a, there was a, always a kind of political uh, tendency to uh, go down the Just Say No route. And we were between us. Uh, quite successful in keeping uh, policy on what one might call the path of righteousness uh, for a significant period. And then later, but still also in health, um, I came across uh, a different side of the, particularly of this question about politics meets democracy. Uh, sorry, politics and democracy meets evidence. Um, I was uh, the principal private secretary in health for three years, and one of the biggest issues at the time was hospital reconfigurations, um, so consolidations of, uh, of, of hospitals, particularly in London, where it was a very, very hot issue. And I, after that job, uh, that was when I uh, did my secondment at the um, School of Public Policy. 
Uh, and I actually took that subject uh, about hospital reconfigurations and spent some time researching it myself and discovered some very interesting things which hadn't been visible to me as somebody working with quite a lot of research that we produced. Um, the big drive at the time was for a smaller number of bigger hospitals on the basis of safer patient care. Um, but as I started to read the research, I found some very interesting things. Uh, the first was that there was something that I came to call a multiplication factor. So there was good evidence that clinicians who did at least 30 procedures of a particular type a, a year had better clinical outcomes. But somewhere on the process of turning that into policy, it got multiplied by three. Um, and so we created an absolute rule that nobody who did less than 90 of a particular type of procedure could possibly be allowed to do that. And of course that drove bigger hospitals serving, uh, serving larger populations. Um, the second thing I found which was very interesting, uh, we tended uh, to put clinicians on a pedestal and assume that clinicians only ever did things for the purest of reasons. Um, and I discovered, again as I got more into this, that actually there were quite interesting uh, behavioural and status reasons why clinicians liked to uh, have bigger hospitals. It is You get more status as a clinician if you specialise in two centimetres of the gut uh, than if you were a general physician. The bigger your hospital, the more doctors, the more specialisation, the more likely you are going to be to specialise in two centimetres of the gut rather than having to be a general physician. So there are a whole lot of things which weren't quite, they weren't quite respectable to talk about. And then the third issue uh, was the, the implicit, uh, there was an implicit weighting uh, of clinical outcomes versus a whole set of rather invisible things to do with patients and patients' families and their access to hospital care, uh, you know, pa the, the engagement of people with the services. There was a, we, we did, we, we tended to over-prioritise, I think in hindsight, we over-prioritised, uh, you know, measurable clinical outcomes over uh, whether or not people could actually get, could access the services and particularly whether their families could access uh, the hospitals that they were in. So, and, and, and all of that got kind of, you know, it all went below the line and disappeared into uh, a kind of technocratic basis of saying we must do this for the following reasons. And it was only much later, uh, partly having seen the same sort of phenomenon produce itself uh, when I was working in uh, in transport where we had similar we, questions about you know, the value of time, the way in which a whole lot of uh, factors, both monetize, monetary, monetizable and non-monetizable, get, get mashed into uh, an apparently uh, uh, objective decision-making process, that actually there are, there are moral choices sitting behind uh, what appear to be technocratic uh, decisions. So, one of the things that, uh, that, that you put all of that together, uh, what we used to see was quite often you know, the research says this um, and a minister would do something else uh, and there would be a sense that somehow we weren't, you know, decisions were not being based on, uh, on evidence but actually uh, there, is a, there is a really good case for thinking about evidence in the context of, uh, of the political uh, and democratic context. So we can come up with the right answer um, but quite often democracy correctly intervenes. So lastly, just a few words about, uh, about DEFRA. And, and you know, various people have said various things about DEFRA. I've only been in DEFRA since 2015, um, so don't blame me for anything that happened before then. Um, but it is a, a very, very interesting department with a history of having, you know, having owned a lot of its own research establishments. Um, you know, there, are, there are all sorts of uh, research was uh, directly done by DEFRA, partly as a result of 1947 effectively nationalisation of the whole of, uh, of agriculture. 
many of those research institutions are now in different uh, kind of constitutional formats. Um, some of them have been, uh, you know, there's one that's in a joint venture between the department and capita. Uh, there are some of them which I think have gone into charitable foundations. We do have one. One of our executive agencies is an applied marine research uh, organisation, um, which is a, uh, one of the things that few people know um, about DEFRA. It's a department with a very strong commitment to science. I think the thing that really struck me when I came uh, to DEFRA was every subject is contested, uh, you know, whether it's um, bovine tuberculosis, uh, the right way to sustain blanket bog, uh, pesticides, GMOs, every single thing we do is contested. So that sense of uh, if we do the right research, we do the right science, and then we base our policy on the right evidence, uh, there will be a right answer. Uh, none of that exists. I've, I've found almost no subjects uh, in DEFRA where uh, you know, there is a consensus about the science which would allow us to then have a clear consensus about what evidence-based policy looks like. So. I think uh, you know, DEFRA is a strongly science-based uh, department. There is a really strong commitment to make evidence-based policy, but it's almost impossible for us to persuade people that we are making evidence-based policy because everybody is endlessly uh, arguing about what the, uh, what the policy is. One of the big challenges, I think, for, for, for all of us is about uh, bridging the gulf of understanding um, between uh, the, the, the people creating the science and uh, the people who are developing the policy. And quite, we, we've done quite a lot, uh, and particularly our, our uh, chief scientific advisor, Ian Boyd, has done some great things bringing together uh, our, our policy makers, our, our departmental scientists, of which there are many, and um, academics, it, getting, and getting people into a room together. Uh, because you know, ultimately, making connections, people talking to other people, is the way uh, in which we're going to make progress on this. The, the, other quest, the, the other thing which I think we as uh, government and departments can most usefully do is to uh, share problems with the academic community at a much earlier stage. We have a tendency to get to the point where we think the answer is X and we seek uh, input on the technical solutions. Uh, I, I, I've, I've not yet managed to do this, but I've been carrying around with me for some time the idea that we, must, we, need to, we need to have much broader discussions about what the policy questions are in order then for uh, researchers and academics to tell us that there might be solutions that we couldn't begin to, to think of because we might ask the, the wrong questions. I think, uh, and, and I think that just, just picking up uh, the, the, uh, the funding thing, I don't want to get too much into funding, but I we are now a department which has very, very small uh, research budgets. Uh, and I, I have a slightly defensive reaction to what, uh, what David was saying, because there's a sense that you know, this is all the fault of departments and it is the fault of civil servants within departments. The reality is there is a much bigger political context that all of this has happened in. Um, you know, uh, flat cash uh, would have been an absolute miracle for most uh, government departments. We have seen our overall budget reduced by something between a third and a half over the last uh, few years. Um, the, the, the political priority of research uh, is quite variable. It varies between individual ministers as well as uh, over time between governments. And the degree to which, when you are trying to take money out of a budget, ministers want to prioritise uh, research is quite variable. Um, and the Treasury, who have quite a lot of levers to make sure that departments do prioritise particular spending, have never chosen, in my experience, to prioritise uh, research spending. So, it, and in a sense, that, that, you, know, you could regard that as you know, a collective failure, or we could regard it as something which is about the evolution uh, we have been through, as, as uh, 
uh, as we were hearing, we've been through a phase when all the money sat with um, the departments. We then went to a phase when all the money sat with research councils. We then went back to a stage where at least some of the money sat with uh, departments, and maybe we're going back into a phase where more of the money uh, sits with uh, uh, research councils. And the question then is, how do we make sure that we're having the right conversations? Our conclusion, just to, just to finish, is that uh, we having... Uh, you can do a lot through uh, the right conversations and influence and setting out what the priorities are. And personally, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with departments being clear about their priorities. We do actually have, we don't do everything uh, in very quick time. We do lots of things in slower time. Um, but we have concluded that you do have to have some of your own money uh, as a department in order to have the right conversations. Uh, if you bring nothing to the table but uh, a list of your priorities, uh, the right things don't happen. So we are in discussion with the Treasury about how we can try and get some of our own money back. <laughs> Oops. Sorry, I thought I was attached to that. Great. Um, thank you for both of those really interesting uh, talks. And I'm, I'm going to offer a few reflections, uh, mainly, mainly uh, starting from the questions that, that Tom has asked. But first, I was just going to say, I also brought a prop, which, which Mark did. But mine's very much overshadowed by the much more impressive older version. So I'm not going to talk about that or try to read quotes from it. Um, Starting with the, the question of have we made progress, uh, I mean, I, I'm talking here from, from the perspective of someone who's been a researcher, who's now the exec chair of a council in new UKRI, and also as the exec chair specifically of ESRC, because you may have noticed social science has come up a few times already in the discussion. And so my answer to have we made progress starts with 1946 and the Clapham Committee, when it was decided that we really shouldn't set up a social science research council because, uh, first of all, we didn't want to distract the best men from, uh, from research into funding, and it, it was definitely men they were talking about, um, but, but also uh, that um, there were just some, some very strange thoughts and ways of working in social sciences that we didn't want to, I think it was the crystallization of spurious orthodoxies would be a great risk if we were to set up a council too soon. So it was a wait and see sort of thing. Um, but then in 1965, uh, when Hayworth, the Hayworth Committee sat, they, they came up with a, quite a different conclusion, which was that actually in the 20 years or so since the previous committee, there'd been a real growth in social science, that the social sciences had done some really interesting things and were actually showing, in particular, that what, what uh, they decided wasn't going to happen in 46, but showing in particular that there were some, some research and approaches, methods, that would actually be helpful to government. So, so when I approach this question, I feel like we, we've had quite a, quite a lot of discussion, both today and uh, in, in recent weeks and months, um, about the Haldane principle and about whether uh, government is asking too much of the research base and directing it too much. Uh, running the Social Science Research Council, the Economic and Social Research Council, um, it's clear to me that we would never exist if, you know, as a council, or at least wouldn't have been set up at that time if the decision hadn't been that social science could actually inform 
policy and, and decision making. So um, I'll just return briefly to, the, to the, the Tom's description or introduction of me uh, about uh, as a professor of public policy doing research to influence policy making. And I would say actually to inform policy making because you know, I, I never set out to kind of get on a platform and say, here's a finding, you must implement it but to really do research that, that would bring something to the table that would help people understand a situation in a way that would inform decisions and thinking. So, so have we made progress, in, in certainly in the social sciences, in gaining at least some standing where, where government decided, yes, there was something there that was worth funding and pursuing, um, which is great and quite a lot since then. Um, have we made progress in the nearly 30 years since I was a doctoral research student? Uh, yes, I would say so then as well, um, because when I was a researcher uh, doing an interdisciplinary empirical social science um, PhD uh, in the early 90s, there were very few outlets for someone who wanted to do empirical research that would actually inform policy and thinking in an area that one was researching, you know, if one felt that there were findings and interesting things that someone might want to know about. Um, there were some, of course, and Manoush is not here, but, but CASE was a good example. I mean, there were, there were lots of places where, where there were bits and pieces going on, but no systematic connection between excellent research and policy thinking. Um, and I think since then, we've had uh, the growth of policy institutes, some of that driven by um, the, the introduction of impact in the research excellence framework. We've had the rise of CSAP, the Center for Science and Policy, which um, Claire sits on, and uh, which has done a really great job of connecting people uh, and re making relationships. Um, we've had the introduction of the areas of research interest, which I, I also think is, is really a good thing um, and really helps researchers, those researchers who want to get involved in trying to address real-world challenges that people are facing every day, um, to, to actually focus on some of those and help people make progress on them. So, uh, um, it's not perfect. Um, we also have uh, the What Work centers. We have lots of, you know, some working better than others. So we have lots of uh, new mechanisms, new approaches, new models for how research and policy can interact and engage. And um, for, for me, that feels like great progress. But I don't think we're, we're completely there yet. Um, and I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. So what about balance, this question of balance? I'd like to just get away from, from the notion of it being um, adversarial, that you know, sh should, uh, should policy be driving research and should it be top-down, or should it be uh, bottom-up and researchers just coming up with great ideas? Um, there are certainly instances where, where both of those things can be happening, and they can be completely separate things. But actually, there's a huge space in the middle where you know, when I go out and give talks or meet people in the research community who are funding, there are enormous numbers, particularly of young researchers, very talented young interdisciplinary researchers, who want to know how they can get funded to do this kind of applied research, to answer the questions in the ARIs, to make a difference to people's lives with their research. So for me, that's a kind of, it doesn't have to all be about a push me, pull you and a conflict between, um, you know, being strategically driven by someone else's agenda and doing something uh, that might be really interesting to the research community. So uh, that's one thing that I, I think we should, in thinking about balance, I think there can be balance built in uh, to that way of thinking about it as well. Um, another is, is the, this conflict between really interesting sort of basic research ideas that come from the community and the very applied pragmatic or instru instrumental questions that might come from 
a policy question, for example. Um, so I had a, a young researcher working on one of my teams once who did, did a fantastic um, job of, of looking around for, for models that, that might be of relevance to real-world problems. And she, she took a, a kind of a form of modeling, economic modeling, moved from a, a kind of a more abstract economic model to a biological model, and then found that there was something called a predator-prey model which she, once she had, she was just doing some sort of methodological learning her, of her own. And we were working at the time on some work for the Ministry of Justice, and we were thinking about how to reduce uh, strain on the justice system. And it occurred to her that there was something interesting to be learned from this predator-prey model for thinking about the relationship between police, numbers of police, and uh, amount of crime. So she started applying the model and thinking about what it could tell us about that and whether it would help us understand, because the, the sort of state of knowledge up till then was suggesting that actually there was very little relationship and we couldn't really tell. Well, the predator-prey model showed her that actually if you introduce time lags, because actually it takes a while for prey to be depleted, I'm sorry to talk about people as prey in this, but uh, if you see what I mean, the analogy, um, that it actually gave you much better predictive value, and then she was able to refine the model and find out more about what was happening or likely to happen under different scenarios with policing. So that was a really interesting example where she took something that was relatively abstract knowledge, she applied it to a real-world problem. Not only was it helpful for the real-world problem, but actually it improved the abstract model that, that she had been looking at and learning about. And so I think thinking about that intersection where the research, the, the, you know, the basic science can be improved by trying to, to apply it, I think that's really worth doing. So finally, what's needed to improve the likelihood of evidence-based uh, policymaking? What, what might we need a bit more of? Um, and this isn't saying that it's not there, but three main things that I would suggest we need to think about, and one of them hasn't really been raised yet, um, is the notion of rigor. So I think that it's all very well to say we want to apply great research to, to policymaking. But sometimes people forget that in doing that, you really have to apply it with great rigor. I mean, it has to be excellent research. It has to be rigorous in and of itself. The way that we're asking questions and trying to apply it has to also be rigorous. And I think the kind of rigor and methodological sophistication is absolutely crucial to doing this well and to applying research in ways that will actually make progress. Um, another is relationships. So I think that the relationships um, it, it's, it's not as easy as researchers would like to think for, for uh, policymakers to know what research is happening out there, even if they could access journals, which it, they can't, which is really unfortunate. Um, but even if they could, the plethora of information uh, when, when under pressure is just too much. So a lot of it will rely on relationships, not relationships with a particular researcher who will tell them what they think or what their research says, but with researchers who will synthesize and, and tell them what the breadth of thinking is about something as well and provide some challenge. Um, we're working very hard as UKRI and with the Government o Office of Science to actually develop those kinds of relationships that will allow uh, just a, a much readier exchange of knowledge. And then the third is resources, because it's all very well to put the areas of research interest out there uh, and to say, here, research community, here's some, here's some questions. 
and for the research community to want to respond and for CSAP to join people up. But if there aren't then resources for research projects to be funded, for researchers and policymakers to get together and think about what the real question is and how they should go about answering it, then it's very unlikely to go anywhere. So I think it's really important that, that, kind of, that we develop new frameworks and models and have the resources to put to actually making something happen. So I'll just leave it there for now because I think we need time for, for further discussion. But that's my thoughts. Thank you very much, Jen. And thank you also to David and Claire for three really interesting reflections and for sort of opening this debate out into both sort of how government uses research and, and this question as well as how it funds research. Uh, and those were, you know, questions that Haldane was, was addressing back in 1918. I'm going to throw it straight out to audience questions. Uh, so if we can take a uh, man there, um, over here, and a lady at the back there. Hello, I'm Richard Wakefield. I used to be head of the Environment Department in Scotland and then subsequently chaired um, a, a research advisory committee for the European uh, Commission. And one of the things that struck me was the scale of the European Commission's total investment in research and the relative lack of communication back to uh, policymakers in the UK of the kind of findings that are emerging. So in today's presentations, we focused a lot on the priorities for investment, but I wondered if the panel would comment on actually how we can learn from others who are tackling the same sorts of issues and actually investing their own money in it. Brilliant. Okay. Hello, I'm Robert Hazel. I'm an associate here at the IFG. I'm also, for today's discussion, holder of a Haldane Medal awarded by the Royal Institute for Public Administration from when I was a young civil servant for a policy paper that I wrote summarizing some research findings in the field of criminology. So to the extent that the IFG is the modern-day successor of the RIPA, um, some of you senior folk might like to consider reinstating the Haldane Medal because I think it died um, with the sad demise of Reba. My question is, I think, a question to Claire um, and it goes back to what you were saying right at the start about your early experience of working alongside researchers when you were in DHSS and the medical research officer you described. And I had a very similar experience when I was a civil servant in the Home Office and we had an in-house research unit and we were very lucky, it was quite big, it was about 50 or 60 researchers. And then when I left the Home Office and went to the Nuffield Foundation, which at the time funded a lot of research in education, I observed that the Department for Education, as it then was, had no in-house research capacity at all. Um, and it seemed to me, as an outside observer, that as a result it was a rather unintelligent customer for research about education. Um, and you may or may not be able to answer my question, but DEFRA clearly has very big in-house research capabilities, as you described, and therefore has a very good interface with the research community outside and can translate both ways. Do you know how many Whitehall departments are similarly resourced in that way and how many, like the old DFE, have no in-house in research capacity at all? Great. And the one at the back. Thank you. I'm Vicky Price. I used to be joint head of the Government Economic Service and, in fact, responsible for productivity for a number of years uh, when PSA targets existed and there was such a thing as focus on it. Um, and really, um, 
a couple of questions, some of them to, to Claire, but also just to point out that, in fact, uh, it's not just industrial strategy that has led to closer working of, of uh, whatever it is that we're trying to achieve uh, in that area and the research uh, councils, but this has always been the case. And in fact, with the ESRC, we worked incredibly well when I worked for BIS uh, to finance all sorts of things and push actually some other departments to set up, for example, the Center for Regional uh, economics at the LSE and so on, uh, which we co-funded, and in fact the ESSC had helped hugely <laughs> on this. Uh, what I'm worried a little bit about uh, right now is, yes, okay, there's a little bit more money available, is something that Claire mentioned, which is the politicization, if you like, of research uh, and of loads of other things, uh, uh, frankly. Um, uh, so there is very often, certainly in biz, I had found there was industry capture, so the things that were actually being done on the research side uh, were influenced by whether we had a strong manufacturing uh, group there, which uh, had lots of representatives from the, from the car manufacturing sectors or aerospace and so on. So a lot was going on in that, those areas with Rolls-Royce and so on, uh, rather than perhaps some other uh, uh, research areas that perhaps we should have pushed for. So there's a little bit of bias, and the question is whether that's been eliminated these days or not. Uh, and the other thing that I had found when I w started working for the government is that in a number of, of departments, uh, social science, social research, was, uh, was underneath, if you like, the scientific research. So loads of chief economists uh, were, were, re were reporting to the board, if you like, through the chief scientific advisor. Uh, and that was stopped, certainly when you know, a number of us were there. But I understand in DEFRA uh, that has uh, happened again. So I would quite like to see whether the emphasis that uh, we're hearing also from from Jennifer on, on the social science bit, uh, is still there or whether that is being pushed down because of whatever priorities it is that this government perhaps now, now has and okay. that would be a worry. Okay, thank you. Claire, would you like to pick up on uh, well, question two, uh, so which was on intelligent customers and then that final question there? Um, so I feel, I feel rather under-equipped under uh, to, to answer uh, our question. I mean, my, my sense in terms of what's, what's happening in Whitehall, uh, I'm told by my, uh, my, my science uh, folk, there are actually only, th there are only three departments now who, which have really big, significant budgets. So health, uh, DFID and defence. Interestingly, quite a high correlation with departments which have been protected uh, in, in recent spending reviews. Um, I don't, uh, what I don't know is how many other departments there are who would have the sort of setup we have in DEFRA. So we have got, so, so we have got pockets of uh, researchers, so the CFAS, our uh, applied marine research, and we have quite significant amounts of research going on in the Animal and Plant Health Agency. And we have, a, uh, we have one of the more senior chief scientific advisors. Uh, and a very effective science advisory council and network of, uh, of, of academics and a lot of people in all sorts of roles around the organisation who have, you know, who are scientists. So I think we, and, and partly, I mean, I think the, the irony of not having any money um, is that you do have to find other ways of, uh, of, of influencing. So the relationships um, have become, I think, more disproportionately more important because we haven't, we've had no opportunity to say, well, we'll just go and commission some research. So we have had to, uh, the, a lot of the work on uh, the areas of research interest, I think DEF has been one of the departments at the front end of that, of actually trying to articulate what it is that we think is important. So, uh, so that's so we we have got uh, a, you know, a strong cap 
capability there. I'd say it's probably uh, Patrick, but I don't know, Mark probably knows better than I do what, um, what the position is across government. Or Patrick? Patrick's going to offer some, uh, some closing thoughts at the end, so I might uh, allow yep. him to do that then. Jen, did you want to pick up on either of those questions? Um, I, I mean, thorny questions. Uh, the, the question about the, the standing of social science in, in departments or, and, and you know, elsewhere through, through government, I guess. Um, I, I couldn't really comment across the piece. I, I, I know that it's... Um, you know, for the most part, round the table. I may be, maybe Patrick can correct me. I think it is mainly scientists in the meetings of the, of the chief scientific advisors. But I also know that there is uh, certainly a, a, a will, and um, the you know the what we hear is that is that they're expressing the, the views and the interests of the whole department. So I, I certainly hope that the economists and the social researchers are included in that. Um, Absolutely, the, the articulation of the areas of research interest would not suggest that, that it's only the scientists who are saying what's important. Um, the areas of research interest, I think at our last count, now that the Home Office has published, had, there were over 800 questions. 68% of them are purely social science. And then there are more that are mixtures of sort of science and social science together. Um, so, so someone's, someone's having a role in articulating those. Now, that obviously saying these are things that we'd like to know more about doesn't necessarily mean that, that you're, you're in a position of great power, but I would hope that resources will follow where they're needed. So. Okay, and David, and we also have the question of what could be learned from others as well. So any reflections you have? On uh, yes, a few brief points. Um, the uh, funding of, of social science by British government precedes the formation of the ESRC. Interesting where there's a committee of productivity in the 1940s, which is uh, funds the development of industrial sociology in this uh, in, the, in this country, for example. The Colonial Research uh, Council does a huge amount of economic and anthropological work in the in the 1940s. And we have, during the Second World War, Lord Keynes, uh, as he became during the war, an advisor to the, to the Treasury. And the Cabinet had an academic uh, uh, physicist as, as a member uh, from 1941, uh, I, th I think. Um, the point about a capture by British industries seems to me to be extremely important. And one of the, those topics that are routinely left out of discussions of research policy. Um, uh, but ne needs to be addressed uh, directly. It, it doesn't seem accidental that so much uh, investment went into nuclear and aerospace over very many uh, decades. And one of the interesting things about that investment was that in both cases it was challenged by economic advisors um, as being uh, essentially ir irrational. Uh, and I think that's very important. There, is, there, there needs to be a debate be between experts that's open uh, ab about the priorities uh, in, in, in research, or they, or they do get captured by particular interests. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's not unimportant that we've had a huge emphasis on biosciences in the last three decades. And as a recent book showed, the, the output uh, uh, in terms of new drugs um, has not been that, uh, that significant. Uh, indeed, if you wanted to choose you know, a, a sector with low research productivity, uh, it, would be, uh, it would be big pharma, would it not? Lastly, the point about learning from other, other places, yes, it's absolutely crucial. And, and one of the problems we have is that we think in deeply nationalistic ways about research uh, policy. Uh, indeed, Mark referred to the uh, market failure uh, uh, argument. Um, 
Uh, the difficulty with that argument is that, uh, uh, um, uh, it, that it suggests a world funder for basic research, not national funders, because we can freeload off uh, German research just as Germans could freeload off, off ours. So, so the, the, the problem applies to, 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 national, to, national, to national states. So, um, so there, there are many real problems at the heart of research, well, interesting intellectual problems at the heart of research policy that I think we need to explore much more systematically. Jen, had a quick comment. Just a very quick comment back on the international comparisons. I absolutely think that we could be learning a lot more from other countries, whether on research policy or, or other things. I mean, certainly international comparisons is something that I've spent a lot of my time on and learned an enormous amount when we thought that crime was going down because we were putting more people in prison. As soon as you look to some neighboring countries, you could see that that obviously was not the case. So um, sometimes it's a very efficient way of, of finding something out very quickly. Yeah. So I'm very sorry to say we've run out of time for this panel and I can see several of you are desperate to get a question in. So can I urge you to just uh, grab our panellists in the, the drinks reception <laughs> afterwards. Just before we go, we've got Patrick Vallance, who's Government Chief Scientific Advisor, uh, who's going to offer a few uh, closing words. Thanks very much and, and, and what an interesting debate this has been. Um, so I'm the Government Chief Scientific Advisor and... Um, uh, took over when, when Mark moved on to UKRI, and, and unlike uh, Mark, I was actually the professor of medicine at UCL. So uh, <coughs> um, I don't know whether we have Haldane to thank for one principle or three principles, but we certainly have him to thank for, I think, a series of structures which have been important, and we certainly have him to thank for the, uh, this meeting and the ideas that have come up. And uh, overwhelmingly, we have him uh, to thank for the notion of a brief report. And that's something that could uh, be taken up today. Um, very early on in this, uh, the notion of um, uh, Haldane talking about a culture of research in government uh, came up, but also the urgency and importance and the idea that you can fall behind other countries if you don't get this right, which I think is an important theme. The importance of training was raised and internationalism and uh, David gave, I think, a very um, elegant example of, of where the postgraduate qualification came from. But I think those questions of training of the uh, people we have and the ability to prosecute research is important. And the fact that in this country, of course, the international nature of that is critical to our success. I think there was a rather um, important and timely reminder that the Haldane principle, if there is one, but certainly some of the concepts embedded in that report and that have emerged from it are not respected everywhere. And, and again, that's something that we need to uh, keep reminding ourselves of. The importance of departmental spend came up and the notion of research in departments. And I will say that actually uh, the notion that the economists are somehow um, under the CSAs is wrong. Um, it's, it's true in very few departments that they're linked, actually. Um, they're linked in terms of what goes on scientifically, but there's certainly not a hierarchy there. And in fact, one of the um, discussions I had with Gus O'Donnell before I started was he said, if only you could do for the scientists what's happened for the economists in terms of their prominence and importance in government. So I think that's probably not a, not a correct interpretation of that. But I think the notion of uh, departmental spend is important, and applied research, and it came up several times, and I'm going to call that the D in R&D. Uh, I think there was sometimes a conflation about whether supporting uh, the D in R&D is actually supporting government priorities. It is sometimes, and it's not sometimes. I don't think the D part is always to do with what government wants. 
But it is true, and David said this, that the, uh, there are times when the uh, public priorities absolutely should shape where decisions need to be made, but not the decisions themselves. Manoush asked, have we got the balance right? And I think that's a very key question. And um, I think what I took from lots of the discussion in the first part is a very obvious point, but an important one, which is science just isn't linear in its progress. And the notion that there's a linearity to it is extremely destructive in terms of thinking about how to fund science and how to protect the bits that need to be protected. And we had several examples from many different speakers about um, where unexpected early discovery led to important advances in other fields. So I think whatever we do, we must never assume that science is linear. And I was rather taken and felt rather guilty when uh, David said it about the notion that gigantism can become distorting. And I've certainly seen that in lots of places, that actually that big idea of funding one thing can distort many of the um, uh, thousand blooms that come up and create, uh, create an environment in which uh, research overall can be successful. Um, then, of course, um, in a sense, the biggest challenge that was thrown down was um, that research policy itself doesn't follow an evidence base perhaps as rigorously as it should. Um, it's definitely a challenge. What the answer to that is, I don't know. One bit I will say, though, just uh, in response, is I think it's quite difficult, actually, to just um, have the argument that the... Uh, uh, pharmaceutical sector, which I spent 12 years in, is, is, has not produced <laughs> enough drugs in areas. I think it, the people who uh, were um, essentially turned from a, 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 um, a death sentence on the diagnosis of HIV to having a chronic disease with a life expectancy similar to the general population would probably violently disagree, as indeed many patients with cancers would. So I think that's probably uh, an oversimplification. But I think the, the, the question about whether the evidence basis for research policy is an important one. Um, if I try and think uh, of a theme that came out from the beginning to the end, and it was in Haldane but not written like that, uh, was um, the notion that you think before you act or you research before you act. And I do think, and several people said this, that researchers are fundamentally interested in the questions that government has, and their interest is important for a reason that I think either Claire or, Je or, or Jennifer raised, which is just by having to frame the question, you actually have an enormous influence on what the policy thinking is, because it turns out often the question's quite difficult to frame. So the framing of the question is important. And I want to end, um, if uh, Haldane, as it is 100 years old, there was one other uh, report which is 50 years old this year, which is the Fulton Report, and one of the things that the Fulton Report uh, said was that there was a need for a scientific civil service. And I think that remains as true now as it did then, that fundamentally, and this comes back to the uh, point that Claire raised and, and others did as well, about the notion to be able to receive scientific advice means an overall increase in the level of science needed within the civil service in order to take advantage of the rapidly changing landscape that we live in in terms of scientific advances. So this has been a tremendously interesting uh, debate and certainly lots of things for me to think about and for others as well. And I know now I'm standing between you and wine, so I'm going to stop. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick.